Hello and welcome to Independent Thinking, the weekly podcast from Chatham House. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. This week, we're looking at the United Nations. Indeed, some of us are speaking from there. The question of whether the UN is losing its relevance in the 21st century is what we're going to dive into, whether it's had its day. This week, the world has descended on New York for the United Nations General Assembly. There are motorcades, gridlock, pouring rain on the first day, all the things that are irresistible to many delegations, not all of them. Missing this week were all but one of the leaders of the permanent five of the Security Council. Only President Biden attended, and Rishi Sunak, very notably, did not. Is this a sign that the UN is losing its relevance in an era of growing tensions? Well, we're going to talk about that, as many columnists have been doing. But we'll also look more broadly at the changes underway within the UN. With the Security Council gridlocked over Ukraine, and before that, Syria, other institutions, parts of the UN are growing in prominence, notably the General Assembly itself. So we'll talk about whether the Security Council is uh, ever going to be retrieved from its present paralysis and whether other parts of the UN are what we ought to look to. Joining me down the line to answer these questions, first I have Mark Malik-Brown, who's president of the Open Society Foundations, but was previously Deputy Secretary General of the United Nations under Kofi Annan. Welcome, Mark. Thank you. Very good to have you with us. And joining us as well from New York is Dr. Leslie Vinjamuri, the director of our U.S. and America's program, who I was working with in uh, New York just a couple of days ago. Very good to have you here, Leslie. Thank you, Brahman. And we have as well Roger Boys, the diplomatic editor, longtime columnist at The Times, based in London, traveling to many, many places, has been a foreign correspondent for more than 30 years and describes himself as increasingly anxious on Twitter X. Are you very worried about the world? Um, yeah, I think we should all be. Yes. Well, that's not a disqualification for being on this podcast. If it were, we would not have many guests. Let's start with the UN <laughs> this week and look at what this particular gathering is is giving us. Putin, Xi Jinping, Rishi Sunak, Emmanuel Macron were all absent this week. Does it matter, Leslie? Of course it does. We all see all sorts of things said, oh, the, the foreign secretary, the British foreign secretary is here, there's a, there's a delegation. But at the end of the day, you know, we all, we all know that turning up matters. It sends a very big signal on the back of the G20. Maybe one of the signals that it sends is you go to the G20, but you don't have to turn up to the UN General Assembly. Um, and, it, and it certainly, you know, it, 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 it changes the, the level of gravitas that perhaps some people accord to the meeting. It changes the conversation, but it also um, it opens up a space, or certainly on this on, on this occasion, opened up a space for President Biden to be, you know, this the sole um, P five member uh, leading the conversation. It kind of puts it squarely in America's camp in, in one sense, and and I think we've seen very much, you know, focus as we know on developing countries. And when you don't have the rest of the P five here for that conversation, I think that also sort of sets a particular tone. There was more coverage of Prince William wading in the river on environmental pursuits, not uh, the British government delegation. Mark, do you agree with what Leslie said? Yes, I do. I mean, there were 145 heads of state here. So, you know, in some sense, other parts of the world, you know, have, have less obviously walked away. And uh, there was 
you know, a lot of energy and enthusiasm ar around certain regional groupings. Africa, Latin America was here in force, but Leslie's spot on. I mean, when the P5, four of the P5 don't bother to show up, it, it sends a message. And particularly the British and the French, you've always had to kind of work harder to prove that they should have those permanent seats. They're not obvious other than for reasons of history why they have them. So, so their neglect and non-attendance I think, you know, strikes a particular note in terms of signalling the irrelevance of, of, of the club, if you like. And we'll come on to exactly that point. Roger, did Rishi Sunak miss a trick? It might be his last chance to go to the UNGA. Uh, yes, it probably will be his last chance. I suppose so, although he's, he's essentially defining himself uh, in opposition to... Uh, some of the things that the UN uh, set out as priorities. So perhaps, perhaps it was a tactical move. I, I mean, I think. For, for, exa that, for example, what? Uh, well, I'm talking about net zero and and the instrumentalization of net zero as a big political issue um, in in domestic politics. Um, Where he's just made this very rapid change. Yes, um, yes, on on cars and on heat pumps and, and these kind of things, things that are causing distress uh, in a lot of uh, countries um, but, uh, and, uh, and making for political traction. Um, and uh, he's decided that this is the week, uh, partly pushed into it, but, but still, this is the week where he will make a stand and, said we, and say we will control the pace at which we reach net zero. It's a kind of Britain takes control over its fate kind of message. And uh, that wouldn't have sat well with a UN speech, really. Um, but I think the main absentee who suffers the most is Macron, because Macron has, has a case to answer for a lot of the African uh, uh, people in uh, African delegates in UNGA. And I think... Um, he could have made it. And, um, you know, the, the whole question of where France, uh, you know, how far France should be responsible, uh, co-responsible for the security of, of, of Africa and the Sahel uh, is, is, is an important one. And, and he wasn't there. That is a really good point, I think, about the chance that he missed, his excuse was that he was entertaining King Charles um, at home on this rescheduled <laughs> visit. But the British royalty really getting too much of a, a look in here, I think, for these serious issues, because it, it, it's something we've discussed on other podcasts, Roger, Roger but you put your finger on it, the, the catastrophe of um, French po policy across the Sahel and the question of where it goes from here is very, very live. And the UN is arguably the right kind of place to make that argument. I mean, Mark, would you, you you've spent a great deal of time, uh, you used to uh, head up UNDP, the development program. Do, do you agree on that point on Macron? I do, actually. And it's actually one of the sort of sub themes uh, this week is what's happened to UN peacekeeping, which you know has always sort of had an advantage of being rather sort of economical and lightly armed troops who cost a lot less than deploying a NATO uh, mission. Um, and that was always seen as a virtue and an advantage. And the talk amongst particularly, for example, the African Union Security Commissioner who's here is we need much more robust peace enforcement, not 
peacekeeping. Uh, and he has in mind places like Mali, where you, you actually have to go out and fight. Um, and that is a very different kind of peacekeeping to, you know, to, to sustaining a truce or a peace agreement, or at least an acceptance by all parties of the UN's presence there. Suddenly you, you kind of have to fight to make headway. And, you know, that's where the UN forces and the French forces have really come up short. And, you know, the Wagner group, for example, has has shown a much more greater sort of military resolve and you know i think thoughtful people are wondering you know how can we kick un peacekeeping up a gear before it becomes utterly irrelevant do you think it's reasonable to ask that of the un it's had this long tradition of peacekeeping um, very much the character that you've described is it reasonable to ask forces operating under the un banner to uh, to fight very actively well, you know, I was in the UN when we went from almost no peacekeeping missions in a time where all it was also felt that they'd had their day up to almost 20 by the time, you know, I, I, I finished my tour as Kofi's deputy. And, you know, every time we fought with governments because we wanted, you know, a more robust more highly militarized force than they wanted to give us because they didn't want to pay the bill. Um, but, you know, what we did even in that period see we were able to argue you know we need you know more policing capability because a lot of these conflicts are now internal conflicts rather than between states and so we saw a little bit of a doctrine evolving of a tougher peacekeeping but it hasn't kept up with the needs and you know like every other issue at the UN this week people can talk about it but unless there's a recommitment by governments of political will and resources. They're just, it's just going to be talk. Leslie, what did you make of Joe Biden's speech? He did turn up uh, and he made, you know, it seemed to me quite an emollient speech, given the long history of the U.S.'s unease with the U.N. and the many um, points of disagreement he could have chosen to, to highlight with other countries, but he didn't. No, he didn't. And I, you know, I thought it was, I thought it was quite something when, you know, he started that speech talking about America's transformed relationship with Vietnam that sort of took 50 years to, to get to that point. We've seen it upgraded now to a strategic partnership and that, that sort of sense of, you know, really at some level, what I guess one of the broader missions of the UN is how do you turn adversaries into friends? That wasn't obviously something that was facilitated by the UN, but it was a nice opening moment. I think the speech, you know, there weren't surprises, um, but he certainly, um, you know, I think you have to, if your baseline, there are many baselines, but if your baseline is the years of Donald Trump and America first, it certainly is a very different United States, very committed to globalism, to partnerships, sent to, I think, a very solid message. And and again, just the, the fact that he was there, you know, I wanted to also add one thing on this sort of absence of of, uh, of France and Britain, it, the Pew um, Research Center did a poll just before this convening of the UNGA of public attitudes within these countries towards the UN. And it certainly suggests that the leaders are out of step by not turning up. If you look at the UK, 72% of those polled have a favorable view towards the United Nations. This is not a country that is, at least in this poll, suggesting that it's anti-UN or, or isolationist. Um, Biden's speech, again, was very internationalist. 58% of Americans polled 
support, have a favorable attitude towards the UN. So there is, there is, you know, domestic support for that vision um, that President Biden put forward. And I think uh, if you look at a number of the the polls that were done, even during the Trump years, there's a lot of internationalist sentiment that was consistent across those years. So I think what we're seeing reflected in that speech does actually have a lot of domestic support across um, across different administrations. That's a really important point. He also went out of his way to be, um, I won't quite say cordial, but um, uh, civil to uh, Iran. And we'd just seen a recent deal on a, um, a prisoner, almost hostage exchange, um, and uh, unfreezing of some Iranian assets. But then that got slapped down a few hours later by the Iranian president, Ibrahim Raisi. Didn't it? Should we make anything of, of a change in relations there? Um, you know, I, I can't help but refer us to the wonderful piece in the Financial Times by our colleague Sanam Vakil saying that, you know, that the West's Iran policy and U.S. Iran policy in particular aren't focused, need to be much more a combination, as I read it, um, of carrots and sticks, deterrence and diplomacy and much more thoughtful. I think there's a, a general feeling and it's a surprising one in light of, you know, the last two decades that um, America's eye is not on the Middle East. Some of us, I think, might be a little bit relieved by that, but of course, it's not—it's not a, a good thing. Mark will have more to say about this, but the the other thing that really, you know, I guess, stands out in the speech, and it, it's a through line from what we saw at the G20 uh, to um, some of what was said, was that you know that focus not only on the UN but on multilateral institutions and really wanting to take forward. Um, reform of the MDBs, investment in the MDBs, the United States appears to be getting beyond that. Behind that, I don't know, um, Mark. Uh, you know how serious or sustained that you think that is, but but very important um, signal certainly from Biden of the need for scaling up support for the World Bank uh, and making sure that those institutions are effective and inclusive. Yeah, the MDBs yeah, being the, well, the development banks. Uh, go, go ahead, Mark. Yeah. No, what, well, what I say was, I think Leslie's right. I mean, it, it's been a theme this week and it's quite interesting because the U US was a bit prickly initially about the UN having a view on reform of the Washington institutions, which it's generally wanted to keep the UN's nose out of. But I think it finally recognized that this is useful political support for that cause. I have to say the leadership of these institutions, however, you know, while ambitious to grow their mandates and their resources are deeply wary of the political situation in Washington and skeptical that the Republicans are going to allow the kind of capital increases that Biden has tentatively suggested. Um, and so, you know, this side of an election, there's a real fear that not much is going to happen in terms of additional resourcing of these institutions. And then the other side of an election, maybe quite a lot won't happen as, as well. Roger, how do you think this unpredictability of the heart of US politics affects the UN at the moment? Well, it should be UN issues and multilateral um, diplomacy should be at the very heart of the Biden administration. And one expected that. But the truth is that these organizations such as they are, and I include G7 in that, are not very effective, and we haven't had the energy, really, from the U.S. administration to change that. That seems to me one of the 
one of the many absences, one of the many gaps in the Biden record is that he offered us a multilateralism and hasn't really delivered. I mean, he he talks nicely, and it's he's certainly an improvement on, on his predecessor, but there's no creative input at all on this. And there was a reference in his speech to reforming the UN Security Council, which is good, and there is some thinking around that. But the truth is, time is running out very fast for Biden. And I'm worried that the Security Council permanently blocked uh, by Russia and China in different ways on different scenarios won't recover really, won't recover from the dying swan phase of the Biden administration and the assertiveness of China. You've taken us very elegantly onto the question I wanted us to discuss next, which is really our second topic, the, the Security Council itself and whether it can be retrieved from the position it's in. Leslie, could you? What have you made of it over the Ukraine, um, uh, uh, the whole um, period since the Ukraine invasion, where the Security Council has been deadlocked, but the General Assembly has managed to get big votes through? What does this tell us about the Security Council and whether anything can be done? Well, I mean, you know, we have the expert, one of the experts on in the room, and in, in Mark on, you know, this broader question of Security Council reform. Certainly, those of us. Funnily enough, I'm about I'm about to ask him in a second, but I. <laughs> I it does. It I, does. I remember does, your strong does, opinions yeah. within Chatham House on this on this subject, so I wanted to get a taste of that. I, that I mean, I, I'm aligned with with those who say it's impossible because you know turkeys don't vote for Christmas, kind of thing. Um, but I still think it's very important that the U.S. has come out. As, as well as now the UK, so strongly in favor of adding more permanent and non-permanent members. It would have been a good thing for Modi to turn up this year, given that, you know, India is arguably first in that line. Um, but, but I think, and here I guess I would disagree with that broader comment about uh, Biden's support of multilateralism. It's clearly the case that the Security Council is stuck on the big issue. I think Richard Gowan a year ago very eloquently demonstrated that, you know, there's still a lot of conversation and actually a number of resolutions that have gone through the Security Council, just not on the top line question of the war in Ukraine. But what, you know, what we are seeing is, as you suggested, more activity in the UN General Assembly. We saw those very important votes, but also a broader sense of, you know, Sometimes you've got to work around the the largest organization, and the the Biden administration has invested heavily, certainly, in a number of um, organizations uh, across the Indo Pacific, the Quad, AUKUS, um, getting together the Indo Pacific Economic Framework. We've seen a talk of the LA Decla- Declaration on Migration. There was an Atlantic Partnership announced this week. Uh, so, you know, there, there's certainly a commitment to finding multilateral fora that are, you know, less bricks and mortar based, but that include a number of key actors, the G20, the G7, um, and that are very much about solving problems, problem oriented um, uh, multilateral frameworks. It's a pity. It's more than a pity. It's a very significant um, uh, falling short not to have the Security Council functional. 
but it's in some ways it's it's good to have it so visibly unfunctional or un- visibly dysfunctional and that it becomes it itself it becomes itself a problem to be solved i like the way you frame it uh, uh, as you know we spend a, a lot of time at chatham house saying we're not simply describing the world we're trying to identify the problems that we then want to help improve if not completely resolve mark do you think the security council is a problem that can be resolved You know, most of its life, the Security Council has been dysfunctional. It's been quite brief periods in the 75 years plus of the organization's life that you've had an effective uh, Security Council. So in a way, it's nothing new. And, you know, the way and, and each time this has happened, the UN generally and the Security Council particularly has defaulted to, as Leslie indicated, second tier problems, you know, where, where it's got a little bit more oxygen and space uh, to act because great power interests aren't so directly engaged or might even be facilitated by, you know, conflict management around the margins, so to speak. And, you know, that's what's driven the council to often be effective on, say, a small African conflict, but, you know, equally shows its irrelevance in a big conflict such as that in Ukraine at the moment. But, you know, I think it is fair to say um, that this is the first time that the reaction of some members of the council and more broadly of the General Assembly has been to say, let's get a foot in the door here for some real reform. And, you know, people recognize it may not happen immediately, but they do, and perhaps it's a bit of a fantasy, imagine a post-Putin world where a, um, a Russia which has in some ways been tamed by the Ukraine experience and learnt from it, becomes an ally also of Security Council reform. Given that those who follow Russia actually anticipate that Putin is more likely to be succeeded by a right-wing nationalist than a liberal reformer, I think there's an element of wishful thinking in this scenario. But at least in the meantime, even this resolution which was passed, which now requires the General Assembly to debate and vote itself after any use of the veto in the Security Council, has in its already changed the tone of things. It's, you know, the Russians are not reticent about using the veto on Ukraine, but they now know that they're going to get a thorough dousing of cold water each time they do in the General Assembly, and it's going to continue to consolidate international condemnation of their actions. So, you know, it, it, it's there's a price to pay now for behaving badly in the Security Council. Small price, but some price. I can see Leslie shaking her head, though others might argue that Russia really, really, really does does mind that kind of criticism, even if it doesn't change its view. I, I just have to add the one line, which we all know and Mark knows very well, or that not everybody in the General Assembly is actually on the side of calling out Russia, unfortunately. that That is, as we have seen many times, completely true. Does this sound like the path to reform, Roger? Um, well, I mean, enlargement is the, I think, uh, a default option for every organization, every post-war organization or post-Cold War organization that has lost its sense of mission. So NATO enlarges, um, latterly, uh, you know, in, uh, in, in the Nordic region, um, but uh, G20 is about to become G21 and uh, and, that, and that one being the African Union the African Union which, which I think is quite a good 
good move. Which represents many, many countries. Um, so, so the move and and BRICS is has become I don't know what the acronym is now. Something like Barbie Barbecue Yes or something like that. I haven't quite worked out how to make it. Um, but uh, the so enlargement does actually uh, focus discussion on 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 values um, and it gives at least the impression of inclusiveness or both of which seem to be missing from the way that the UN is operating at the moment so um, and by enlargement we're talking about country we've mentioned India but Japan South Africa Brazil yes but who may I mean, not may not on some of these issues have lots in common may not share views at all and they may come out in support of, of Russia. Uh, this is also quite possible. But uh, but that's just the case for... Uh, I mean, the problem with Russia and, and to a large extent China is that they're in their role in the Security Council is that they're being seen as the champion of, of, of the Global South. Um, and um, when it's so plainly not the case, when, uh, you know, th their interests may overlap uh, at, on certain points, but they're not. And so enlargement actually dilutes that. Uh, so that in, in itself is good. And then with the Ukraine war becoming a global war and um, uh, a, a war in which famine is weaponized and atrocities are committed and, uh, and uh, everything else, this too has has an appeal as an argument, um, and I've I've argued several times that Zelensky should be presenting this as a colonial war, um, and uh, and he would get a lot of sympathy, I think, within um, uh, within the General Assembly for that for that kind of line. But he's he's not. He's 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 he miss. I, I thought in this particular session that he missold. Uh, the Ukraine case. He did make the case um, about it pushing up food prices for everyone, saying this this really affects the yes. whole world. He did make that that point, and he made the the, the point about not being too should uh, countries shouldn't be too frightened of, of Russia's threats um, about nuclear weapons and so on because the Russian threat is going to continue unless something is done about it, and one shouldn't be bullied away. So it, it seemed to be he was picking some points in mm. the audience, but maybe perhaps not that explicit appeal, as you said, to the, the countries that um, sometimes call themselves the, the, the Global South. Mark, do you think that the Security Council and the UN can play a useful role in heading off worse tension or even conflict over Taiwan? Because this has to be one of the tests, doesn't it? A, a conflict where you can see it brewing uh, that would be catastrophic for globalization for many many countries or all this is it can it do something to help resolve this before it gets to that point i i very much doubt it frankly i mean i think this is a highly sort of bilateralized or trilateralized uh issue where it's very much about u.s china politics and not just international relations between the two countries, but domestic politics in both countries as well. And, you know, I think there are plenty of ways to head off a conflict in Taiwan, um, but very few of them lead you to the door of the Security Council. It's just too much of a first-tier conflict with direct 
great power engagement, if you like. So, you know, I, I, I think if, if that's the test of Security Council effectiveness, it's failed already. Um, but, you know, I do think on Ukraine, where we rightly dismiss um, the Council's efforts, nevertheless, the UN, through the grain deal, you know, problematic and suspended though it now is, uh, and through the monitoring of the civilian nuclear energy facilities in Ukraine, is doing useful stuff at the margins. And, you know, I, I, I think that's where you see its impact. And, you know, we are all frustrated. It's not more central, but I think that's the reality. Well, I wanted to bring us at the end, and we are just about at the end, to, I guess, the best that one could look for from the UN. And um, I think in a, in a quiet and cautious way, you've given us that, Mark. Thank you for that at the, at the end. We're going to have to wrap up there. So a huge thank you to my guests, Mark Malik-Brown and Leslie Vindramuri, particularly for getting up very early in New York. Thank you. And uh, Roger Boys and I did not have to do that, but Roger, no. uh, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I simply had to get up out of my jet lag. Do follow all our guests on Twitter, X, as we will inelegantly call it. The links are in the notes to this. And a reminder that you can find all of our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, all major platforms, as well as through our social media. So do like, follow, subscribe, and leave us a review. I do look at them. To read more from our experts or to find out more about our events, and this is really uh, the peak, peak winter season, or to become a member, and we'd love to have you. Don't forget to visit chathamhouse.org and you can find the work of all our programmes there, including everything that Leslie and team are writing. Goodbye and thank you for listening. And once the hurly-burly of the UN has finished this week, we will turn our attention to other things. 